Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, the modern kitchen is nothing like what I grew up with. The choices of fixtures, sinks, lighting, and major appliances are, well, overwhelming. And that's why whether you're planning your dream kitchen or building your dream home, Ferguson Bath Kitchen and Lighting Gallery can help. Start by browsing the online inspiration gallery on fergusonshowrooms.com and then request an appointment with your local product expert. And they work with designers, builders, and other trade professionals to meet your specifications while exceeding your expectations. Visit fergusonshowrooms.com today to request your appointment. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, milkstreetradio.com, for each week's recipe or wine recommendations and also updates about our cooking school and live events at Milk Street. I hope that you enjoy this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I chat with YouTube sensation and food geek, Alex Inews, also known as Alex French Guy Cooking. We discuss his mad scientist food experiments, why you must always say bonjour when entering a Parisian cafe, and also the pleasures of melancholy. 
we are we we were born depressed and we will die depressed. <laughs> okay. But but it's part of the charm of Paris. When when you're in Paris, you can't be that optimistic. This is a very American thing to do. When I'm in the US, I'm I'm always pumped with energy. Everything is positive. But when I go back to Paris, then life sucks very much, and I need a glass of wine to share my complaints with friends. Also coming up, our tip for turning citrus scraps into a sweet syrup. Dan Pashman rings in the Jewish Sabbath at a Wendy's. And now it's my interview with Jan Davison, author of Pickles, A Global History. Jan, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Chris. Good to talk to you. Let's start out with a pickling 101. Um, So there are different methods of pickling and different types of pickles. Could you just give us just an overview to the basic categories? So the key principle of all pickling is that basically what we're wanting to do is to create an acidic environment which actually stops the growth of all the food-spoiling bacteria, yeasts and moulds and actually keeps the food in a good condition for us to eat in weeks or months later. And that's really where pickling began many, many millennia ago. But really, if we look at the main types of pickling, there's really three main groups. A whole lot of pickles are actually used with salt, either you immerse the foods in brine or you put them into dry salt, which creates its own brine over time with the liquids coming out of the vegetables. You can also preserve and pickle foods in vinegar. And then a very unusual and different method is actually used in South Asia, in India, Pakistan and Bangladesh, which actually is about using mustard and sesame oil and the heat of the sun to ferment and preserve the vegetables. So let's go back in history at pickling, and there was some really great stuff. You said that there's a Persian recipe for locusts pickled in brine. And, yes. Uh, use locusts that have just been caught, discard the dead ones, and put the live ones in brine. When they all suffocate and die, <laughs> strain them and keep the strained liquid. That, that was the, uh, an early locust, pickled locust recipe, right? Yes, it was. Um, and I think it's fascinating that the locusts had to be, or and still today, will have to be alive um, because of kosher law dictates that it, it, it's fine to eat locusts that have been lo- alive, but you, you shouldn't pickle ones that have already died. So um, herring, the Dutch in the 15th century had big factory ships for processing herring. It sounds like it's very modern. They'd stay out for weeks at a time. Just tell us a little bit about the herring industry in the Dutch. Yes, I mean, the, the herring industry or the, or the herring, which was called the silver of the sea, is fascinating because originally when herrings were caught, they would put salt on them and just leave them in a pile sort of on the harbour. And of course, they would quickly, because they're very oily fish, would quickly go rancid. But then in the 14th century, a Dutchman called William Buckles came upon the idea of making sure that the herrings were preserved as soon as they were caught. So they gutted them immediately, they were landed, they pressed them flat, they lay them in big oak barrels and then poured over salt water and pushing them down in order that they they excluded the air. Hmm. And this basically enabled them to be taken back to harbour already nicely preserved. But, I mean, at this time... Herring was a real staple of the diet across Europe. And when the the fleets would come in, it was with a great fanfare that these huge barrels of herring were rushed to all the main city markets and they were eaten by everyone. The rich to the poor would all eat herring. But they certainly made the Dutch very, very wealthy and they dominated the herring trade for many centuries because of their techniques of being able to preserve the the fish at sea. Now... Let's go deeper into preserved fish, sir strumming, uh, which I've actually tried. Uh, oh, have you? Unfortunately, that was brave. Well, we opened the can on the sidewalk because we, we opened one can uh, at Milk Street, and we everyone had to leave the office. So, so these these are canned fish, but there's fermentation going on in the can, and and yes. the cans start to bulge, which makes you rather concerned. So, could you just explain to people what sir strumming is, uh, because it's it's pretty ripe. It is. I mean, again, it's it's a, a process of pickling, but in, in this particular instance, just a very, very small amount of salt is used in the pickling brine in order that it stops the fish actually going rotten but does little more. And so that's where you begin to get the, the bulging can. So, yes, I think it is, it is definitely um, an acquired taste. And there's a, a, a lovely quote from a 
a French writer who talks about trying this particular dish and saying that you certainly would only share it with your friends if they had no sense of smell. Well, they also recommend uh, opening it underwater <laughs> because... Oh, I, I haven't heard that yeah, one, but that, I'm sure when it's emerged from yeah. the water, it will still have its delightful aroma. And then the ketchup business really started with the liquid that was used to uh, preserve or pickle mushrooms. And that was, it was a mushroom ketchup, I think it was the first one. And then eventually it became what we know today. Is, is that how it got started? There, there were lots yes, of I mean, ketchups, like walnut ketchup and mushroom ketchup, right? Yes, so certainly in Britain in sort of the late 17th century, we were big on beginning to, to make things that, which we began to call ketchup. And they came first, as you're quite right, from pickled mushrooms, where people were pickling the mushrooms and then began to realise that actually that sort of brown liquid that, that resulted at the end was actually tasted rather good as well. And this coincided with a sauce coming in from Southeast Asia on the trade routes, which had a name of ketchup. And people didn't know what it, what it was, what it included, but it seemed to taste a bit like the liquor that we, we were pickling and bottling from our mushrooms. And so there was a great industry experimenting with, with different ways of trying to replicate this sauce from, from the East. And so one of the earliest recipes was Eliza Smith's, in, written in her book, Complete Housewife, in 1727, where she took anchovies and shallots and wine and vinegar, horseradish, lemon peel, spices boiled it all up together, bottled it, and then instructed that you shake it daily for a week. Hmm. And so once we had that idea, we moved, as you said, from mushrooms to walnuts, cucumbers, to a whole range of, of different cockles, oysters. Everything was beginning to be used to actually create some form of ketchup or ketchup. But it took an American to actually come up with the tomato ketchup. And that was when James Mees, who was a very prominent Philadelphia scientist, experimented with tomatoes, which at the time were called love apples, and he said they made a fine catsup. It sounds like the earlier ones were vastly better than what we have now. I mean, I, I like to go back and try some of those, right? Well, they were certainly, I think they would taste very different from today, partly because they were much more acidic right. um, and much sharper, because they didn't include at that time sugar. I think that's the story of the 20th century, just add sugar. Right? Well, <laughs> it seems to be, yes, alas. Jan Davison, thank you so much. Pickles, a global history. Thank you. Thank you. Mill Street Radio is available anytime, anywhere as a podcast. Subscribe and you'll get every episode downloaded right to your phone each week. We post new episodes every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. It's time to take your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, it's time to open up the phone lines. Are you prepared? You know I am always prepared. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Rob in Pinellas Park, Florida. Hi, Rob. How can we help you today? I sometimes break down and use a cake mix instead of making a cake from scratch, even though course, I like the scratch-made results better. But there's a cookbook writer who suggested in one of her recipes using a half a cup of whipped cream to make a cake moisture. And in fact, it really does a great job in the scratch-made recipe. And so I thought, why not try that for my box cake mix? And I use the butter variety usually. And I tried it the taste is actually really good, but the cakes will fall just a little bit. The taste is great, but, you know, the look is not so good. Well, was this a Shirley Corher idea for the uh, cream? It okay. is. Yeah, good old Shirley, <laughs> yes, bake-wise and cook-wise. Um, great books. That's yes. right. First of all, I just have to say a word about box cake mixes. I can smell them a mile away. They have that wet cardboard, right, Sarah? There's some strange odor and flavor to this. I have not made one in a million years. But also... The, the texture is very good. The fat in there, there's a fair amount of fat, isn't there? Well, there's a stick of butter, basically. That's right. Okay, so I have a question. When you said whipping cream, you didn't whip it. You just meant heavy cream. No, I whip it just like Shirley does in her recipe. She sort of half whips it. She gets it a semi-stiff. That's so interesting, because I thought the point about whipped cream is it had to be cold to hold its volume. 
and you fold it in at the end, at least in her recipe. So I tried that with the box cake mix. And, and added that on top of the butter? So you had yes. butter and cream. Yes. That might have been part of the problem there because you've got too much fat. Yeah, that's a good Cause, point. Because yeah. actually butter is cream. It's just cream over beaten. So you have eight tablespoons of butter and eight tablespoons of cream. So right. you get so a you cup just... of fat. It may be that, as Sarah said, I hate it when you're right. Um, <laughs> just really is tough for me. Um, that you didn't have enough dry goods, enough flour in it to hold that amount of fat. And that's why it, you got that uh, collapse. Maybe you want to try it again and cut back on the butter. Okay, I'll give that a try. Maybe try four tablespoons of butter instead of eight. Yeah, that's what I yeah. would do to begin with. And it might work better. Or make Shirley's actual recipe. I love her recipe. But it it's too takes much a while. Yeah, it's true. It's true. No, I, I get it. You I know what it. you can do, though? The next time you make a Shirley Courier cake, make double the dry ingredients and then measure it to make sure you divide it exactly in half. And then take the half that's the dry ingredients, and then you've got the makings and beginnings of your next cake. All you have to do is add the wet ingredients. So oh, just that's made, a clever idea. You've just made your own cake oh, mix. Oh, but then you have to think ahead, and you have to remember where you stored it. Oh, no big deal. I'd put it in the freezer. Have you ever seen my freezer? No. No, I, I don't want to see your it's, freezer. It's, it's a history of the Kimball family going back to the 1970s. <laughs> I was going to say. It's archaeological. And it's, <laughs> no, uh, but and anyway, at any rate, why not? I mean, if you're measuring dry ingredients, just measure doubled. You're a better man than I am, as it were. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks for calling. All right, Rob. Thank you. Yeah, Bye. take care. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to answer your culinary questions. Give us a call anytime, 855-426-9843. One more time, that's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Yes, hello, Chris. This is Gene Eckhoff calling from Brattleboro, Vermont. Oh, oh. well, I shop at the co-op uh, every time I go up. So. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> they, they always ask me, me if too. I pack my own eggs and do I have a number. I don't pack my own eggs and I don't have a number. So I oh, disappoint dear. everyone every time I go. <laughs> yeah. How can we help you? Well, I had uh, made a, uh, a recipe using um, garlic, mushroom, and um, quinoa recipe. My question really had to do with creating uh, the right texture. I had eaten out at uh, one of our local restaurants where they made this wonderful they were quinoa mushroom. It seemed like the same ingredients. Obviously, they weren't, but um, balls. And then they served it with a like a spring salad on top. The thing that was amazing about it was that it had this crusty, you know, texture on the outside, crisp and crusty, and then but soft on the inside. And uh, I asked the waiter, and the waiter said that the chef said it was cornstarch that he used. Mm-hmm to hold it together. And I experimented, but it didn't come out near the same. So this is essentially, I mean, more or less, you're sort of doing... Like a burger? Yeah, it, it's essentially a burger. It's, they're balls, I guess, but it's... it's, yeah. it's, it's you know, they're bigger than meatball idea, but... Right. Uh, the question is, what would the binder be? I mean, I think one thing exactly. that's often used is that liquid in a can of chickpeas. Is used. Yeah, that stuff is used as an egg huh. substitute. I assume you don't want eggs in this. It's vegan... Are you okay with breadcrumbs? Because that would be the breadcrumbs. Yes, would work. I am. Well, breadcrumbs. Uh, you take a couple slices of bread, a couple tablespoons aquafaba, mash it up, okay. and then put that with everything else, and that would help be a binder as well. I think that would work. That works in regular. It sounds burgers. a lot nicer than cornstarch too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, the other thing Wonderful. is when you form them, you want to chill them or freeze them for fifteen yes. minutes or half an hour, and then you might dust them panko with panko or whatever, at the okay. end, and yep. that, that'll yep. give you a nice crust on the outside. Outside, yeah. And he's cooking these Perfect. in, did he deep fry these, or did he just saute them in a little oil? I think they were sautéed. Yeah. They didn't appear to be deep fried. Mm-hmm. I'd use a good amount of oil, like maybe half an inch in a cast iron skillet and get it pretty hot. Oh, okay. That would brown them and give you a nice crisp on the outside. I mean, crust. the problem with quinoa yeah. is on the inside, it's not going to have a lot of texture. No. So that you want that outside crust. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's wonderful. Well, so, thank so you wait, so wait a minute. So, so which restaurant in Brattleboro was it? It's called Duo. D U O. Okay, I don't know. Well, Gene, thank you. Yes, Gene. Yeah. Thanks for calling. You bet. Thank you so much yeah. for taking my call. Pleasure. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye. This is Milkshake Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. 
Up next, my interview with Alex Inews, YouTube star and author of Just a French Guy Cooking. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like, um... Like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. (laughs) I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Alex Inews is the creator of Alex French Guy Cooking, a YouTube show in which he takes viewers on bicycle rides around Paris and conducts all sorts of really crazy food experiments. He recently published his first book called Just a French Guy Cooking. 
Alex, how are you? Yes, I'm good. How are you? You're always good. I, I watch you on your YouTube channel. I just like to talk about that at the outset. Could you explain to people how it's different, the way you film it's quite unique, uh, sort of the concept behind it? Uh, so this is, this is very different from your regular, your average cooking show. I shoot things the way I live things. So I would take my camera, I would just go in my kitchen slash laboratory and just shoot things. Then I would turn the camera and add a few comments. And then I'm missing an ingredient. So I'm just going out. I'm putting the camera on my bicycle. It's like, it's like writing or just making a movie, but you know, as, as it comes. So it's far from, you know, these are the ingredients, this is the process, and this is the outcome. No, 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 no. It's about story. It's about following somebody who's trying to do something, and obviously it fails from time to time. <laughs> Just like the rest of life, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and your kitchen is very much a science lab workshop. I mean, could you describe what it looks like for, for people? Yes. So it's a medium-sized room. I would say it's about 40 square meters. Um, this is my studio, so where I record the videos. This is my kitchen. This is also the production area where I edit and I record the voiceovers. So everything is modular. The kitchen islands, they are placed on wheels so I can move them around. Uh, you've got a big, wide wall with all my spices. I'm a freak when it comes to spices. There's another wall all dedicated for uh, video production. There is another wall. Uh, I've got many walls in this studio. Um, dedicated to tools because I'm using power tools all the time. It can be within my cooking. Like I could use a power drill and a whisk attachment just to <laughs> whip up uh, a, a good mayonnaise or a quick mayonnaise at least. But also I'm using those power tools to build stuff because I'm always... Uh, making contraption within my video. This is one of the, you know, aspect of my uh, videos. So here, here's a here's a question for you. Uh, you. You do some classic French food. You do lots of things, but you do quiche and you do uh, uh, bisque, you do bouquet garni. Uh, is French cooking at this point dead? I mean, is the classic French cooking? Whoa. I know. I see. I knew. <laughs> I I had to get your attention. Now I woke yeah, you right up. I, I think. <laughs> is it oh, dead? Yeah, I or think not? you did a great job at this. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't think French cuisine uh, is anything close to being dead. I think <laughs> in the past we were a bit stuck in in those, you know, uh, classic, a bit aristocratic, a bit posh, probably haughty uh, techniques right. and process. Um, but I think things have been evolving very much. There's a whole new wave of young chefs. They were born in France, but they learned the technique and, and, you know, different practice abroad in the UK, in the US, in Asia. And then they came back and they opened brand new restaurants. I right. think the, the restaurant scene right now in Paris and in France in general is buzzing. And, and I'm trying to do, you know, my own thing. I'm trying to put smiles on people's face instead of, you know, fear on their face. I, I want people to be inspired by French food instead of just being, you know, intimidated by French food. But, but 10 or 15 years ago, the cooking in Paris, I'm sorry, w was getting a little old. In the last 10 years, you're absolutely right, there's been a huge revolution. So part of your show is insane. I mean, you, you, you try to dry age, <laughs> the dry age the steak, I, the meat, I saw that one. And oh, wow. you go, th you, you build the little thing in the refrigerator, and then you have to get the humidity right, and this doesn't work, and that doesn't work, exactly. and you have the fan, and et cetera. Uh, the, dr the dry aged beef machine. Yes, the dry beef machine, right? And you do your little you know, scientific uh, penmanship there, uh, which mm -hmm. obviously is not somebody anybody's going to do. So, how do you mix uh, practical uh, for your audience with kind of the crazy? I, I think I realized at some point within the YouTube journey that that YouTube isn't about recipe. YouTube is just about movies, small movies, short movies, videos, however you call them, they still are movies. And a movie has to have an, an arch in terms of, you know, a story. Right. There needs to be challenges, there needs to be ups and downs. And I thought, well, that's exactly what I'm experiencing every day in my kitchen. Let's just showcase the whole thing. Usually, when I'm making a recipe, uh, I'm doing research ahead, I'm looking online for variations, 
Uh, and then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying, I'm failing, and at some point I'm getting some success. I mean, to a certain degree. And now instead of just showing showing the outcome, I'm showing the whole process. And I think the the, the science stuff is just part of my research. I'm a former engineer. So I love understanding before actually going into practice. So that's how I prepare my, my, my recipes. And now I incorporated that in my videos. So, so tell us how to make the perfect French omelette. Okay, so the perfect omelette would start with good eggs. Because whatever the outcome, whatever your technique is, if you have bad ingredients, there's no way you can make a good omelette. <laughs> start with four, four eggs. The, the size of your pan would be uh, 24 centimeters. I think that would be nine inches or mm -hmm. something. Yeah. Uh, you, would, you would just beat the eggs really to a smooth texture, to something without any lumps, any, uh, d to something super uniform first. Get the pan really hot. Add a good amount of fat. It can be oil, it can be butter, it can be a mix of both, whatever. But you have to keep in mind that an omelette is basically fried in a pan. So there needs to be just a, a tad more than you would expect in the pan. And you need to, to get the pan really hot. If your hub goes from zero to six, you want it at five. That, that's how hot you want your pan. And then you would just, you know, uh, pour the uh, egg mixture straight into the uh, sizzling oil and super quickly move the pan around and, this, and, and, and make an eight with your other hand, with, a, with the, the spoon of a fork. The idea basically is to shake the pan as vigorously as possible and to create a layer around the uh, omelette to be, if you want. The inside is going to be a bit runny, but as you wrap the omelette on itself, the center is going to cook super slowly. And uh, at the end, when you want to unstick the omelette from the pan, you would tap the handle a few times just to make sure that those surface, the egg and the pan are not in contact anymore. And then you would flip it upside down on a plate. When you see Jacques Pépin doing it, you see, there's no way you would think this is difficult. It's like it's it, it's exactly like going to the circus, and and watching a clown doing his performance. Everything seems super easy, but it but it took years to master those skills. It took years to understand that this is the texture you're looking for. So uh, you, you say I have a confession to make. I just love instant ramen. Uh, okay, so so why do you love instant ramen? This this is one of my problem, man. This is a low blow. I mean, I know. I I'm ad I'm addicted to to instant ramen. So on my YouTube channel, I've been making a whole series about how I I tried to get away from this addiction, but unfortunately, I failed miserably. Since like like two days ago, I think I I had a, I had a few instant ramen. There is something in instant ramen that is made to keep you addicted, like fat. Salt, MSG. This is just a perfect blend. I think this is this is my my kryptonite or whatever you you want to call it. My, my whole series had a purpose though, because as I wanted to get away from this instant ramen addiction, I made everything from scratch. I made noodles <laughs> from scratch. I made I, I even made a pasta machine from scratch. It's funny. I, I, wait, I, wait, I wait, wait, a, wait, 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 wait. How do you make a pasta machine from scratch? How did you do that? Yeah, so first I broke uh, two or three pasta machines, you know, commercial pasta machine, mm -hmm. the classic one that you can buy in supermarket, just because the dough in, uh, in ramen noodles is way more uh, stiff than, than pasta dough, for example, than Italian pasta dough. So I broke a few, then I ordered a big one, a heavy-duty pasta machine in a factory in China. It took a month to get to my studio. I used it. I broke it as well, and then we fixed it with an American engineer, and we made another one, which is, which is just a thing of a beauty. That thing could crush like kilometers, miles and miles of noodles in no time, and and it even has a power whisk attachment, so 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 you can even do this electric. Uh, okay, now we're gonna have an argument. Uh, you say that bring it on. Oh uh, yeah, well I'm gonna win this one. French onion soup, <laughs> you say, is about the beef stock. I say that's nuts. It's about cooking the onions in the fond, and you Ooh. you can use water Ooh. and white wine, and you don't. It makes its own stock because you keep cooking oh, no. the onions over and over. So so tell me why it's about beef stock. 
because uh, the onion is bringing sweetness. Whatever the onions you're using, you, you can use sweet onions, you can use whatever you, onions you want. That soup at the end is going to lack profoundly the layers of flavors needed to get that extremely pleasant, satisfying experience, something warming for the soul that you are looking for when you're slurping an onion soup. You're, you're just going to have something, you know, <laughs> meh. Why, why, why do I pick an argument with a French cook? I'm You're just going to lose every time. <laughs> well, okay, so, so, but look, isn't beef stock 19th century, really? I mean, isn't this Escoffier? I mean, nobody should have to worry about beef stock anymore, and the stuff You're in the right. supermarket's terrible. So wh- why are we talking about beef stock? No, the, the, only thing, the only thing good about beef stock, so yes, it takes, some, it takes too much time to make. The only thing is that it's part of the nose-to-tail philosophy. Whenever I'm, I'm using beef, I'm not always going for the prime cuts. I'm also going, going for, you know, low cuts, like cheap cuts, still from good, sustainable, local production, but, you know, cheaper cuts. So Monday you do instant ramen, on Tuesday you do homemade beef stock? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, why you're, not? You're a complicated guy, man. You're, you're yeah, not. It's, it's funny, because when people tell me, like, I'm sure you eat fancy food. I eat very simple food, but the way I make it is just insane. I would eat, I would love like a bowl of ramen in stock, like just super simple, no toppings, nothing, but but to make those noodles, I've right. been over hills and valleys and high mountains. Uh, years ago, uh, if I went to Paris, I found a lot of Parisians kind of depressed about the future. Uh, with, with Hollande <laughs> as as the president, and everyone's going. This is terrible. Uh, every, everyone actually yeah. was very pro America because they thought things were great over here. Uh, mm-hmm. Has that changed now, wh- where the future looks brighter to Parisians than it did no. ten years ago, or you guys are still no. sort of constantly upset about everything? What? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with the context. It doesn't have anything to do with the economy. It's just built in. We got this built into us. We are we we were born depressed and we will die depressed. <laughs> okay. But but it's part of the charm of Paris. When when you're in Paris, you can't be that optimistic. This is a very American thing to do. When I'm in the US, I turn into my American mode. So I'm I'm always pumped with energy. Everything is positive. Life is good. But when I go back to Paris, then life sucks very much. And I need a glass of wine to share my complaints with friends. But you enjoy being dyspeptic. You enjoy being yes. depressed. It's part of the great joy of life, right? Of course, of course. Right. You, you, you can't only see the bright side of things. Like chatting about how sh- Life is is just an amazing moment you can spend with your friends. I do this all the time, by the way. This is probably our number one subject at the table. It's it's probably very good for your appetite. Yes, it is, and it's just you know it's it's very fun as well. I think we share something with 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 the British. I think we we share at least something with the British. It's it's that there is irony in life. There is so much right. irony in life. I I must be French. I just find that enormously appealing. You must be French. I must Everybody's be. French. That's <laughs> going to be the next title of my cookbook. <laughs> my next cookbook is going to be called Everybody's Little French. Everybody's French somewhere. <laughs> uh, so if I if I stop by the typical sidewalk cafe in Paris, you, you want to give me some advice about what to order, what not to order, how to enjoy it, uh, etc. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you if you stop by by the regular cafe, first off, please, please, and I and I just mean it because I am starting to like you. Okay, please <laughs> just starting. say yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm starting to like you. That's we good. we don't know each other, but we we, we are becoming <laughs> friends over the radio, which yes, is cool. Please say. Bonjour, when you enter the place. You can't just go in and say a cafe. If you do this, no, 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 nothing's good is going to happen. You need to say bonjour. That's one thing. If you, Same goes if you go to a bakery. Then you can sit probably wherever you want. And I would say you can... This is much more relaxed than the US, in fact, since you can stand in a place and spend hours with just a cafe. And I don't think people will really care about it. Or at least they won't tell you... They they won't push you out. One thing I do, which is rude, but still accepted from a French point of view, I bring my own croissant to the cafe where I'm going. What? I sneak in my croissant. Yeah, yeah, that's no. very rude. I'm, I'm very French. Yes, I do. I do this all the time. I make a mess at the table. I make a flaky mess <laughs> at the table. <laughs> I, no, I, I'm just pushing a bit too far. But yes, I would sneak in my croissant. 
I, I would never think that would be acceptable. I'm sorry. I, yes, this, this is not acceptable, but yes, would do it. And, and let's go back. I, my wife lived in Paris for a while, and she told oh, well. me the same thing you just said, which is when you walk into a cafe, a restaurant, a store, look the person in the eye, say hello, have yeah. a conversation before you please, get to and, business. And please, right. yes, and more than hello, please say yes. bonjour, because French people are, are, are bad English speakers. Not all of them, obviously, but just just saying bonjour, they will open up, man. Yeah. You, you, you might have access to the best croissant out there, the, the pain au chocolat, the small viennoiserie you never heard of, just because with your American accent, you say bonjour, they, they will just open up with a big smile. <laughs> Alex, uh, it's been a real pleasure. I, I found a new friend. Um, it's been a pleasure, man. Yeah. I, Absolute pleasure. And best of luck with your book and with the, the YouTube show. Uh, although you don't need luck, you do a great job. It's been a pleasure. Alex, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Thank you so much, guys. That was Alex Inews. His YouTube channel is Alex French Guy Cooking, and his new book is called Just a French Guy Cooking. You know, when Julia Child wrote Mastering the Art of French Cooking, most of the recipes came from her co-author, Simone Beck. It was Julia who tested and translated them for the American audience. The French, including Simone Beck, would never ask the question, why does this recipe work, or is there a better way? It would just never occur to them. But here in America, we take nothing for granted. But French culture is changing, and so cooks like Alex are now asking the basic questions and having a lot of fun doing it. Yet I worry that what I love about the French, their confidence in French food and culture, may be disappearing. When that day comes, the French will no longer be French. Right now, I'm heading over to the Kitchen of Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Georgian-style chicken under a brick. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. So chicken under a brick, a classic Italian recipe. I've made it many times. Very hot back in the 1970s. You remember the 1970s? <laughs> sort of. Yeah, your parents do, anyway. Uh, and one of our editors lives in Spain, Albert, and he traveled to the Republic of Georgia. It turns out they also make chicken under a brick. Technique is very similar, but they use slightly different flavors. So how do they do it? So we start with the chicken. Uh, you said it's spatchcocked. That just means butterfly. So you take the backbone out of the chicken using kitchen shears, flip it over, press down on it to break the wishbone, and then you have a nice really flat surface because uh, we're going to put this in a skillet and really get nice browning and even cooking. I love this technique. So it starts breast side down, and how do you weight it down? Not a brick, I assume. <laughs> Not a brick, uh, though you can use a brick if you'd like. Just wrap it in foil. Uh, we use a heavy skillet or a Dutch oven here, uh, and that's going to give it enough weight to kind of give every part of the chicken some contact with the skillet. So it cooks breast side down for the whole time, or do you flip it over or what? So just until it's nice and brown and the skin is really crispy, we flip it over. We put it in the oven to finish cooking, hmm. uh, and then that takes about 25 to 35 minutes in the oven. So in Italy, they might use lemon juice and pepper, et cetera, maybe some fresh herbs. What do they use here? So we rub the chicken uh, before it goes into the skillet. We rub the chicken with a mixture of ground coriander and salt and pepper, uh, and that sits on there for about 30 minutes. That's going to allow the flavor to penetrate, but also it's going to dry out the skin to keep it nice and crispy when we cook it. And then a sauce at the end? Yeah, this is a classic Georgian sauce. We add some garlic to the pan drippings and then deglaze that with chicken broth, uh, add butter, and a huge handful of cilantro. It's just a really nice quick sauce, but something a little bit different than what you've typically had when you've had chicken under a brick. So the Republic of Georgia and Italy have something in common. They do. Spatchcock chickens under a brick, except the flavor the profile is actually quite different. Very different. Lynn, thank you very much. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for Georgian-style chicken under a brick at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, our tip for making lemon syrup out of lemon rinds. We'll be right back. If you enjoy Milk Street Radio, please take a moment to review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your other favorite podcast app. This helps other people find the show, also encourages them to listen. Thanks. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. 
Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be taking more of your calls. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am ready to take those questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? My name is Cynthia Delight, and I'm from Fairlawn, Ohio. I make a lot of pizzas, and um, I make them at home, of course. And I like a nice, crisp crust. And I was wondering, does the type of pan make a difference in the crispness? And also, whether or not I use parchment paper. Uh, it does matter. Uh, you should okay. use a baking steel, not a stone. Preheat okay. it for at least 30 minutes in a hot oven. Okay. We, we like putting the steel two-thirds of the way up in the oven, so the top cooks the same rate the bottom does. If you put it at the bottom, what happens is the bottom of the crust gets overcooked by the time the toppings are done. So okay. that's great. Um, a baking stone also works. A pan, a pizza pan's not going to work as well. It's not going to retain okay. as much heat. So, what about using semolina flour on the bottom? Does that make a difference in the crispness? No, it just means it's not going to stick. Uh, Cornmeal is not a great idea because it gets gritty, but any okay. kind of flour. But baking steel really is a better the way than to a go. baking steel. Actually, I'm going to throw out something else. I've had a lot of luck using a sheet pan, you know, a metal pan in the bottom, right. but in the bottom shelf of the oven. Because oh. if you're looking for a really crispy crust, I say cook it on the bottom shelf of the oven on top okay. of the steel which you've heated, 
for 30 minutes. And then also, for years when I was on the Food Network, I had this wonderful um, makeup artist, and she was Sicilian. And the way that she rolled out pizza dough, she learned from her mother, was on olive oil. So instead of, you know, stretching it by hand or rolling it out on flour... Wipe your counter with olive oil very lightly and then roll out the dough on the olive oil. And that oil, when it hits the hot pan, will also help to crisp your pizza. Sarah's right. If you don't have a steel or a stone, I would put it at the bottom. But with a baking steel in particular, it's going to retain so much heat, the bottom of the crust is going to get really overcooked and tough. So it depends okay, what on what about, you're cooking. Uh, parchment on. paper. Parchment should you're not supposed to use it above I think 450. Uh, I've used it. I have too, frankly. But it I've chars got, on the outside. I've, I would use a natural parchment paper, not one that's silicone chlorinated. Coated. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The other thing, though, I wanted to say: if you have a thin dough, you shouldn't have a lot of toppings. It should be very spare. I think one of the mistakes is putting way too much topping on top of the dough. It should yeah. be very light. There should be uh, gaps in between the cheese and the vegetables or whatever else. And if you do it lightly, then everything will work fine the way I described on the bottom of the oven. This is just for a crispy pizza, not for, you know, a more traditional, thicker with dimples pizza. Get a baking steel, but then try two-thirds the way up and try in the bottom and see what you think. And olive oil. Good advice. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. I'm going to do that, too. All right. And we won't tell anybody about the parchment if you want to use it. Oh, thank you. Just make sure it's uncoated. (laughs) Yes. Okay. All right. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for going. Thanks, Cynthia. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Elizabeth Wilson in West Virginia. Hi, Elizabeth. How can we help you today? Um, I have a question about a cookie recipe. A friend of mine's grandmother was from Switzerland and made um, traditional Swiss cookies, Brunsley, Shankly, Springerly, but one in particular called Basler Leckerly is a spice cookie. And in her handwritten recipe, she specifies two-year-old honey as one of the main ingredients. And I'm wondering, what is it about old honey versus any other kind that might make a difference in that recipe? Wow. Well, I raise bees. I do get you know, 100 pounds of honey a year. I don't have not noticed there's any difference between my 10-year-old honey, my 5-year-old honey, my 1-year-old honey. I don't think honey changes very much. In fact, they've found honey from Roman times, which seems fairly unchanged. So is there any reason they think it has less moisture in it or something? I, I don't understand. It doesn't make any no, sense to me. No, makes no sense to me. I've never heard of that before. I mean, do you know, Elizabeth, if there's some difference in the honey? I mean, did the recipe say something about why it would be older? Yeah, I, I don't. Although I did see a recipe for Leckerly somewhere that also called for strained honey. And again, I thought, I'm not sure why. That would seem rather troublesome to me. Well, it may be that in the day, there were bits of comb and bees and other little bits and pieces in the honey if it wasn't strained properly when you, you extracted it. So it's sort of like why people sometimes rinse beans or other things because there's dirt in them. I think that's why that would be true. But older honey, it's in a jar. It's not going to change. Yeah, I don't think so either. I wouldn't worry about okay. it. It's also not used in this recipe. Is it for the glaze on the cookie? No, it is used in the recipe. Oh, it's in the recipe um, itself. It's part of the ingredient, yeah. Have you made it with just, quote-unquote, new honey, like new wine? <laughs> like right? Yeah, yeah. The Beaujolais honey? <laughs> yeah, the Beaujolais. Have you used regular honey and it worked fine? It seemed to, and I thought, well, maybe there's just a depth or intensity of flavor that comes from older honey. I I couldn't tell any difference. It was still really good. I don't think think it's like aged cheese or aged... No. No. No, I think there may have been a reason 500 years ago or something, but I don't think today... No, I don't either. Okay. Sorry. Okay, great. That's all we know. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Elizabeth. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. If you juice a lot of lemons like I do for recipes or cocktails, here's a tip from baking expert Stella Parks that puts them to good use. Start with three already juiced lemons, chop them up, toss them with a half a cup of sugar, and let them sit for three hours at room temperature, stirring occasionally. Strain the mixture, 
pressing on the solids. We also like using orange rinds, although they require about half the amount of sugar. Stella Parks uses the syrup to candy nuts, make whipped cream, and sweeten berries. We also like it shaken into cocktails, mixed with soda water, and brushed on cakes. For more culinary inspiration, please go to 177milkstreet.com. Right now, it's time to talk to regular contributor Dan Pashman of the Sporkful podcast. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How have you been? I've been well. Uh, my guess is you have a story you just can't wait to uh, to tell me. I do. I thought you'd appreciate this one. So you're familiar with the Jewish Sabbath, Shabbat. It begins yes. Friday at sundown yeah. um, and it goes through Saturday, but typically it begins with Shabbat dinner, which is a meal on Friday evening. Right. And uh, and uh, it's celebrated all over the world by Jewish people with a series of blessings. And obviously some people more observant on the nitty gritty of the blessings than others. Well, recently I had the pleasure of observing Shabbat dinner with a special group of seniors in Palm Desert, California, who do Shabbat dinner every Friday at Wendy's. I, I You know what? For the first time, I have no idea where this story is going. <laughs> okay. Uh, with, that, with that intro. Uh, well, I mean, you know, you know, you're familiar with Wendy's. You've yeah. heard of Wendy's. They yes. have that in Vermont, right? Uh, and in Boston. Yes, I'm, I know people used to work there. So yeah. Well, you know, so really, this is what the story is about, which is that uh, you know this group of seniors, uh, a handful of them, decided on a random Friday, hey, let's go do Shabbat dinner at Wendy's. We don't feel like cooking. Let's just go to Wendy's. And there was this, a couple of the wives said this. The husband said, Wendy's, that's crazy. And they they insisted. They went and they lit some candles. The manager said said they could light some candles. And they had a little bit of wine. Hmm. And then the next week they invited a few more people and a few more people and it became this tradition that has expanded to now it's it's 25 or 30 seniors show up at this Wendy's. They call ahead to give their number for the, the day and the Wendy's sets up a big table for them. So is this part of a national campaign by Wendy's now? <laughs> no, no. Wendy's has, has no official affiliation with this group. They have been nice to them. They give them free soft drinks and a free mini ice cream at the end of the meal. The event is overseen by a man named Lou Silberman, who is the, he's a, a type A personality, as he will tell you. He's an organizer. Lou is an organizer. And um, he sends out an email. He rallies the troops. He assigns someone to bring some dessert. Um, he sometimes himself orders the son of Baconator. So as you can tell, it's not the most kosher Shabbat dinner. Uh, <laughs> really what this story is about, though, is that this group of seniors has it's turned into a big weekly event. And one of the things that I talked to them when I was there about was just the importance of ritual and routine. Hmm. I think that a lot of the reason why people gravitate, people of all different faiths and cultures gravitate towards rituals is that it it gives you a structure to your life. Right. I spoke with one woman named Roberta Mahler who talks about how she makes her bed every morning. And she said, you know, you, you have to make your bed because if you don't make your bed, then you so pretty soon you're not getting dressed and you shuffle around the house in your pajamas all day and then you know you're you know you lose track of what day it is you you need a routine because you need a reason to get up and go and do every day and to carry on the process of everyday living well you don't have to convince me i i get up at 5:30 every morning including saturday and sunday and so i'm like i i grew up in a house that was highly regulated in terms of routine i do have a question though which is yeah. it's it's sort of an odd thing because it seems to me that food, that is preparing food, is is probably the ultimate ritual, right? I mean, it, it, it has steps to it. It has timing to it. And, and especially when you get to celebrating cultural or religious moments, uh, food has great meaning. And so I, I can understand coming together, et cetera, is part of the ritual. But the underlying preparation of the food has such meaning for people, I'm surprised they're willing to give that up. Because that, 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 for me, that's, that, that's so much a part of that ritual. I, I, I can see that, although I, I also think um, from talking to, to these seniors and some other seniors I've spoken with recently, you know, I, th- I think that you reach a certain age where you kind of get tired of cooking, yeah, especially cooking true. for big groups of people. And, you know, it, it becomes, the buildup of it becomes more of a chore. But you still want to see your friends, and you still want to have meals together. Well, do you think there's a midway point between preparing Simmus and Wendy's? <laughs> <Is> there, <laughs> I mean, 
isn't there something there in between the two somewhere? <laughs> sure, and I'm and I'm sure that some people, you know, would choose to observe Shabbat dinner in a way that involves more home cooking. I, I can see that, right. but I think at the end of the day, it's it's about seeing yeah, people and true. being with friends. But one yeah. of the things that I really appreciated about sharing this meal with this group was that it had the feeling of like a, a family reunion. Yeah. You know, even though they, a lot of them see each other every week, but they come in and they greet each other and they catch up on the week. Uh, you, you, know, like you can tell that this yeah. is an ingrained part of their routine and how important it is to them. And, you know, a, a chili cheese baked potato is also a very delicious Shabbat dinner, Chris. Shabbat at, at uh, Wendy's with candles and dessert. Dan, thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman of The Sporkful. You know, Dan Pashman spoke eloquently about how seniors in California ring in the Jewish Sabbath at Wendy's. The convenience of the venue makes it possible for more neighbors to participate. History shows that food has always been at the heart of ritual and social interaction. The care and effort that goes into cooking is a way of expressing the sacred nature of ritual. Maybe in these modern times, we have to adapt to the realities of busy lives and also underused kitchens. But if rituals demand sacrifice, let's do our best not to sacrifice the food. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can always download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to our website, 177milkstreet.com. There you can find each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch the new season of our television show, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. And production help from Debbie Pavick. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brennell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.